Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you? All is good. Uh, just about to set off for, we're recording this Sunday morning, and uh, my timetable's now got me teaching at nine o'clock on a Monday. So that means I have to set off oh. for work on a Sunday, uh, which is a bit, a bit of a bind, but... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm like Tigger. As, you know, as soon as I get near the classroom, I'm bouncing off the wall. So really looking forward to it. Well, as soon as that alarm clock goes at three o'clock in the morning, Kieran, you're bouncing off the... We're, we're all globetrotting today, Kieran. So I'm off up to Birmingham to see my wife who's on tour. How exciting is that? And that's lovely. Um, we're also very excited, Kieran, because we we we, we spoke to Steve Lamack the other day. We did. There's a, new, there's a new podcast joining our stable, The Price of Music. Hosted by Stuart uh, Dredge and Steve Lamack, and we had a very exciting time talking to them. Uh, and our lovely listeners can hear a little uh, a taste of what that pod's going to be about. But it, oh, Steve Lamack clearly has some very good. Steve Lamack is clearly the uh, accountant of the music world, <laughs> <laughs> the one to whom the interesting things happened, Kieran. <laughs> he certainly does. <laughs> And None also, of which can be repeated, of course. Uh, of course, yeah, and also brilliantly, he named a couple of bands. That, uh, we both nodded away sagely. Of course, oh yeah, of course, yeah, 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 of course. Um, it's questions day, Kieran, but we do have a couple of news stories. Uh, one of which, uh, uh, in a normal fashion, occurred about twenty-five minutes after we said goodbye to each other last time. I'm not sure, Kieran, whether this story about Joe Lewis and Spurs. I'm not sure if this is a big story or a huge story, because none of the media reporting it seem to be able to agree as to whether or not he still has any involvement in Tottenham Hotspur. Yes, this is uh, very strange. So Joe Lewis, who owned uh, the vast majority of a company called Enic, which in turn owns the controlling interest in Spurs, um, he was charged with uh, naughty behaviour with insider trading by the US authorities uh, a few months ago. Um, and, and I quote his lawyer at the time, the government has made an egregious error in judgment in charging <laughs> Mr. Lewis, an 86-year-old man of impeccable integrity and prodigious accomplishment said Lewis's lawyer, David M. Zornow. Mr. Lewis has come to the US voluntarily to answer these ill-conceived charges and we will defend him vigorously in court. Blimey. Well, that's, that, that's, that's showing it to the man, is it? So he's now, ple- <laughs> he's now pleading guilty. So I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know why the lawyer said those things. Perhaps, it, perhaps it was just lost in translation somewhere. Um, and in terms of of this uh, insider training, the the accusation is that Joe Lewis had access to information um, relating to some successful companies, and that information was not in the public domain. So, for example, let's say that you're running a company and it's got a a new drug or it's got a new product, which is going to be absolutely fantastic, it's going to make a fortune, you cannot trade shares on the basis of that information because it's not in the public domain. Um, the accusation is that uh, Joe Lewis 
instead of giving bonuses or you know tips to some of his staff, such as uh, pilots, uh, people that work for him, uh, one of the guys he plays poker with, and I, I just and the word assorted lady friends. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what assorted means. Um, he gave them this information. And uh, they were able to make substantial money on the back of that because the price of the shares went up. So Joe Lewis also transferred his shares in Enoch to a uh, family trust. Um, and at the time, Spurs said, well, this is just a bit of succession planning. He's 86, we've already said. There's no change of ownership. Don't get in, nothing to get involved with. And people are now going, actually, is it because he knew what was coming in terms of the insider trading? And he's now trying to uh, distance himself. So Spurs are now saying, Joe Lewis, never heard of him. Nothing to do with us, Gov. Um, and so on. Why is this of importance? Because you know, ultimately, to date, it's just a bit of tittle-tattle you know, for, for us to, uh, to start off the show with. Well, I think the big issue is that there's been a number of football clubs that have been up for sale, um, you know, either explicitly or you know, word on the street. And Spurs went from being word on the street up for sale to nothing's happening. And the reason for this, possibly putting two and two together and perhaps reaching five, is that Spurs effectively took themselves off the market because they probably realised that anybody who was serious in making a bid for Spurs would have to do some due diligence. And as part of that due diligence, they'd you know, lift the carpet and out would come crawling these insider trading charges and you know, the way that that was going forwards. So now that that is very much a case of Joe Lewis pleading guilty, I think it's fair to say that uh, Spurs are in the game in terms of being a club available for sale. We, we don't know what the intentions are of the people in, in charge of the trust, but one of the barriers to a Spurs, and, and I think they're an incredibly attractive proposition myself, uh, one of the barriers is certainly lifted. That, um, as you say, the assorted lady friends, slightly sordid expression. It's like this 86-year-old going in, it's like a pick and mix. It's like a female pick and mix. He arrives somewhere in a Caribbean on a Friday night, he's got nothing to do, his poker mates away because he's putting money in the shares that he's tipped him to to buy. So he'll just get some assorted lady friends and he'll bore the arse off them with his insider tips, basically. But as you say, Kieran, before I ask you the, the important question, because we're on a financial pod, which is how much Tottenham will be worth if somebody does try to buy it, if it is on the market. But people have been joining the dots. A lot of Palace fans, for example, have been saying with 100% conviction that they they know for a fact that Harris and Blitzer, this is the chance they've been waiting for. They've been waiting to buy Spurs. This is why it's all gone pear shaped at Palace. Um, but the two responses, I mean, the, as you say, the response from him, where basically he said, <laughs> like Private Godfrey, it said basically, I'm, I'm awfully embarrassed. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's a terrible thing. I can only apologise. Which is one of those press releases which says, okay, I thought I was going to get away with this. This is annoying. But Tottenham's response as you say literally shutting down any it's like it's nothing to do with us he was to do with us 
we're we're doing this press release very reluctantly because of course you're asking us we want you to go away which seemed to me they were protesting too much mm. as they would say but if if Tottenham were for sale now because of this how much I mean I, I presume I mean we talked about Palace being 250 million Tottenham's got to be worth four or five times that hasn't it um, I, I would say more. I mean, Chelsea went for two point five billion in respect of a stadium with a capacity of forty one thousand, which probably needs knocking down and replacing or moving to uh, another location. If, if Chelsea want to be competitive in terms of match day, Spurs have already been through that process. Um, yes, they've not been as successful as Chelsea, but then Chelsea's success was built on. Roman Abramovich subsidising the club to £900,000 a week for 19 years. Spurs, from a business point of view, and I've said this every single time, the most, uh, the best business in the Premier League. And therefore, my view is that I think we're probably looking at um, a price around about £3 billion. We saw uh, FSG sell 10% of Liverpool for £300 million. That values... Liverpool at around about three billion. Again, Liverpool have been more successful on the pitch than Spurs, but you know Spurs have done all of the the hard yards with regards to the real estate assets. Um, they now have potentially the most lucrative um, stadium in the country. Certainly, from a pricing point of view, it's uh, you know it's it's right at the very top end, uh, and it's in London. So Manchester United's valuation from Sir Jim Ratcliffe around about five billion. Um, I would say that Spurs is you know three three and a half. Um, so you know if Harrison Blitzer have got that money available, then that's a separate issue. But it, um, there is no way that uh, you know Spurs will be sold at, at a discount because there's no pressure to sell. Um, and, and as you know, Sir Alex. Uh, Ferguson once said, "Yeah, when when negotiating with with Daniel Levy, it was more painful than having the hip replaced." Um, so, <laughs> you know, that's you know, Daniel Levy is is, is a fantastic negotiator. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> working on the basis, Kieran, that Palace are reluctant to pay six million quid for a Colombian right back from mid-table Belgian team. I'm guessing that probably rules Harrison Blitzer out of the three billion quid for Tottenham running. Is my guess. Probably Steve Parrish can't afford it either or will insist on going to be chairman of Tottenham. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> you mentioned Liverpool, Kieran, and this is our other news story. And it it seems there was a day last week when I think it would have been very difficult to walk around the centre of Liverpool without being ambushed by some kind of radio reporter <laughs> with a microphone asking for details of their, their grief and their angst and their anguish at this terrible, terrible decision by Jurgen Klopp to go a decision that the rest of the country met with. Oh, well, I wonder who else they'll get in. Um, <laughs> clearly, in the city that you're returning to, it's a much, much bigger story. It's, it came out of nowhere, Kieran, it seems. You may have more insight on this. Um, and he still has two years left on his contract. So, financially, is is he going to take a hit here? I mean, I presume he can afford the hit, but do we know how much this is going to cost him to, to break his contract early? It, it won't cost him anything. He's on an estimated fifteen million pound a year contract, um, and, and worth every penny, in, in my view. Um, yeah, I, I've I've worked in the city of Liverpool, um, f- well, on and off for forty years. Um, 
and he's achieved honorary Scouser status, and that is bestowed upon very, very few people indeed. Um, so, yeah, the, the story broke on Friday at 10.26 a.m. Um, I'd been given a heads up about it a little bit earlier. I think the word had got out. So I think what the club decided to do was to uh, take control of the situation. Um, by all accounts, he'd advised Fenway Sports Group in November that it was his intention to uh, to, to leave at the end of the season. But they were looking for the appropriate time. And you know, clearly, it, it being a, a very closely guarded secret, it was starting to leak. And therefore, on the basis of that, the club did the right thing. because it, it makes far more sense to do it this way than for, for people with big you know, WhatsApp, WhatsApp groups, uh, Twitter, and so on, to, to be leading on the story. With, with respect to his contract, um, and, and you're absolutely right with regards to the media response, uh, I was out for a romantic meal with the Baroness on uh, Friday <laughs> night, and then I had that... that Awkward conversation. Um, we, we need to get home for half past ten because I'm on BBC, um, <laughs> BBC World. <laughs> so she said, "Well, that's just cost you two more cocktails." Um, <laughs> so was, and I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm out of pocket. I'm out of pocket. BBC, thanks to Jurgen. Um, so I, I from a yeah from from our business point of view, and that's that's the lens with, through which we should be viewing this. I did contact. Um, one of our secret lawyers, um, and this is our, our secret lawyer, who is the the father to to, to these two you know, gorgeous baby girls, who I, I can, I'm delighted to say uh, we're now up to uh, one kilo um, on baby daughter one and 850 grams. They're still on ventilators. Um, God bless the NHS and you know everybody that's uh, you know, so you know, we're sending all our love as, as before, of course. Um, but he, I asked him with regards to what would the position be here, and he said that if Jurgen Klopp had was going to take another job in England over the course of the next two years, then Liverpool would be seeking some form of financial recompense. But I think Klopp has said that you know he he would never he would never manage in England again. Um, but, but but they have agreed to release him early. And there will be some restrictive covenants, but under normal circumstances, that would be sort of gardening leave of no more than 12 to 18 months. But he also might have what we refer to as a carve-out clause in his contract, which could have been to say that, you know, I'm, I'm Jürgen Klopp, I'm, I'm a proud German uh, citizen, the opportunity to to one day manage my national team. So there could be a specific clause that says, well, yeah, yeah at the end of the uh, end of the Euros, or um, you know, perhaps perhaps in twelve months. I, I genuinely think the guy you know is you know, wants to take a break. Um, that he might be able to go and join a national team slightly earlier than a return to club football, if that's what he wants. So, you know, the educated guess from our secret lawyer, it's that it's unlikely compensation will be due if he takes a year out and, and almost certainly if he then takes the German uh, national coach job. Well, you say the German national coach job, but again, it's um, an indication of the way the mind of football journalists work, that there was endless speculation on Friday and Saturday. We said, oh, he, he said he probably wouldn't manage in England again. He didn't say he wouldn't manage England again. There's a distinction between in England and England. You kind of think, well, unless he's only doing the England away games, 
I think managing in England <laughs> probably covers England as well. I can't imagine any of your meals with the Baroness are not romantic, Kieran. Sure, that's a tautology, isn't it? I would have thought. <laughs> it's true. They, it's they true. were they were remarkable scenes before we move on. I don't know if you've seen those. I mean, those brilliant the clip from a, a roving TV reporter who just happened to be on the streets, just happened to be on the streets of Liverpool, telling urchins that Bill Shankly had had retired. And the re- it's incredible. I, I urge anyone to to YouTube this because it's the most amazing glimpse into into social history but they, they, there was that sort of there, there was a reminder of that in the response from Liverpool fans of, of Klopp going and they must have known he was going, he was never going to be there forever anyway this is it's a questions pop game so let's move on to questions um, this first question normally I take producer guy's word for it I read the questions out I don't do the research beforehand because I, I want to hear the answer the same way our listeners do but this one oh, this is such a good story I, I, I did some research on it, obviously, as, as listeners will understand why. It's a brilliant story, and it's a brilliant question off the back of it. And I apologise in advance if this is the wrong pronunciation, Thies. But the question comes from Thies van der Zouwen. Um I'm going to learn uh, Dutch one day, Kieran. I, I think it's a wonderful language, but it's it's quite difficult. I've got a mate who lives out. He's been out there for about 14 years. He's He's gone beyond hello and thank you, but he's he's struggling with the rest. (laughs) Um, Also, he says, trouble is, he said, I sound like I'm a German talking Dutch, and I don't like that. (laughs) Uh, But Thies has a question. Thies says, I have a question about Bram van Polen. This Dutch football player made national headlines here when he signed for his 17th year at Dutch club FC Zwolle. He included the term in his contract that all season ticket holders should get a free round of beer to celebrate the good news, which is, I mean, you, I don't know anything about Bram, but already he's one of my favourite Dutch players. <laughs> he's, he's gone right in behind Johan Cruyff. He's between Cruyff and Naiskins now already. He's, he's way ahead of Burkamp. To the best of my knowledge, Burkamp's never bought anyone a beer, let alone a whole town <laughs> around the beers. But Tisi's question is, and again, I... <laughs> I love football fans because of this. Because uh, while we're celebrating the fact that everyone's getting a, a free round of beer, Tees wants to know who bought that beer for the fans. Was it a gift from Bram van Polen and did he pay taxes on it? Or was this a forced gift by FC Swirla? I like there's an accountant in every story, Kieran. Who paid for that? Who's paying for that free beer? You say it's free. Someone's paying for it. Well, it does look like a contractual obligation. Um now, what might be the case here is that uh, uh, Bram van Polen will have this treated as a benefiting kind and therefore be taxed if the club is seen to be giving the beer to the fans, um, assuming that uh, Dutch tax law is, is based on a similar basis to, to what we have in the UK. And, and I think that's fairly universal these days, that benefits in kind are taxed. Alternatively, um, it could be that he has simply agreed to have a deduction from his salary um, in respect of the amount of the beer, and they might have sold it to him at mates' rates. Again, potentially there's a tax liability arising here if it's uh, at non-market rates. Um, But it's a fantastic gesture, and even as a non-drinker, I applaud him. Um, this, this is why we love football. It's uh, it's things like this that make you so proud to be a football fan. Well, again, there will be FC Zwolle fans saying, well, my mate also supports FC Zwolle, but he doesn't drink. Who gets his drink? 
I'm evident. <laughs> you'd, you'd like, I don't like to indulge in national stereotypes, Kieran. Um, although I already did with the German-Dutch reference earlier on to an extent. I'd like to think that the Dutch tax authorities are slightly more relaxed about things than they are here. <laughs> a bit more laid back. It's like, if you've got it, pay it. If you haven't, don't worry, we'll sort it. But whoever, wherever this story is, Kieran, whatever country it took part, you'd like to think the tax people would go, let's not get involved. It's a brilliant gesture from a man. I, I don't know how well supported FC Zwolle are. I can't imagine there are tens of thousands of season ticket holders. It's a brilliant gesture. He's buying the biggest round of drinks ever in the world. Let's let's not get involved in this. Let's just let him do it. But of course, they they can't help themselves, can they, Kieran? They, they they've got rule. They got a rule book. Ah. Get in and, and rule books have to be followed. See, every now and again, you revert to type, Kieran. You can be <laughs> producer guy can talk about you as the groovy accountant as much as he wants. Every now and again, your 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 inner rule follower. <laughs> I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Now, we, we very rarely talk about uh, football in Canada, Kieran, so I'm looking forward to your answer to this question, which comes from Matt Keep. Um, and again, apologies, Matt, if I've mispronounced that. It's K-E-I-P, so I'm guessing. Uh, but Matt says, here in Canada, our Tier 1 league, the Canadian Premier League, is now in its fifth season. The owners of the clubs don't release very much information on their financials, and I'm always worried that the league is going to fold. The club in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Valor FC, is owned by the Gridiron Football Club, Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And as they are a non-profit, they have to release a financial statement, unlike the other clubs in the Canadian Premier League. The CEO of the Blue Bombers was quoted as saying what the average attendance needs to be for the club to be successful, and it's not being reached. As this is the only club whose financials are released, how much can you extrapolate about how healthy the league is as a whole when only one of the league's eight clubs have to release their financial statements? Yes, uh, this uh, did send me into a Canadian rabbit hole, um, <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> which, is, which is unusual. Um, as far as the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are concerned, um, and I didn't think that Gridiron was that big in uh, in Canada, but they've got revenues of forty five million Canadian dollars. And they're making around about a ten percent return on that. So, and they're getting crowds of thirty thousand. If we then look at the Canadian Football League and Valor FC, um, they've got an average attendance of just three thousand. So, yeah, what are we talking? They're sort of you know mid-tier League Two. Um, but what concerned me was that when I went into greater depth from the uh, Blue Bombers accounts. I found that it was owed almost a million Canadian dollars uh, by Valor FC, and it's got 
so little confidence of ever receiving that money, it's just written it off. Um, so if this is indicative of the broader position um, with respect to the Canadian League, and, I, and I've, I've watched Vancouver Whitecaps myself, but they're in MLS as opposed to the Canadian League. Um, and you know, they've got a big ground and they get decent crowds. I think this is indicative. And, and we've also heard one or two rumblings at a national level uh, in terms of a deterioration of the relationship between players and the, and the Canadian Football Association. So um, just as here in the UK, I think there's a genuine concern that many other sports are being squeezed out due to the obsession that we have with football. And you and I are old enough to remember growing up as kids, it was football in the winter, cricket in the summer, um, and so on. And you'd still be watching, you know, I, I rem- you know and we'd all be interested in the athletics because we remember Cram and Ovet and, and, and uh, Sebastian Coe and, you know, whereas it's now very much been marginalised, all of the focus is very much on football. Um, I think the opposite is true in Canada in the sense that ice hockey, gridiron and so on, just, just like it is in the US, um, but, but to a much greater extent because of the you know, the nature of the, the much greater population in the USA. Um, so it is a minority sport. It is fighting for airtime. It, it's fighting for, for oxygen of publicity, and, and that's reflected in, in the crowd. So um, unless the, the wages are so low or the, unless the wages are reduced, I think that, that you know, it's going to, to, to struggle to make progress um, certainly from a financial point of view, um, and, and therefore that's going to dissuade investment in the sport. And remember, Canada is hosting or part hosting the 2026 World Cup. There doesn't appear to be a lot of interest. Um, or, or, you know, and, and you know, the World Cup is still a, a fair way away, but there appears to be a lot of interest in it um, you know, from, from what we're seeing in, in, the, in the media to date. Uh, there will be, Ken. I mean, people, those games will sell out. Canada is a wonderful country to visit. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and you mentioned cricket, Kieran, in an ideal world at this very moment, you and I would be glued to the TV screen watching an unexpectedly cliffhanging you know, cricket. But we're so professional, we're so dedicated to our lovely loyal listeners, Kieran, that we are rushing through some questions in the hope of being able to see it before we start our travels. Just as a bit of context, Kieran, the Canadian dollar is, is worth how much in terms of sterling? I think it's about two, two to the pound. A bit. Okay. It's, right. it's, it's a few years since I was last in uh, Vancouver, but... I, I, I was in Canada for three weeks, and after six days, I was surreptitiously looking for jobs in Canadian universities. I'd fallen in love with the place to that oh, extent. And you don't you don't drink beer. Imagine how much you'd, more you'd love it if you drank beer. It's like going to Holland. It's like some, you can almost hear the music as you as, as the barman says, "Which one? Which one of these forty eight wonder?" Have they all got special glasses? No. Conor McGuigan is a QPR fan. Uh, and as he says quite rightly, it's been a tough time lately for us with having promotion hopes two seasons in a row that totally collapsed. Despite this, we realistically never had a big enough budget to sustain the promotion challenge compared to clubs like Burnley and Sheffield United, with us suffering injuries and having little squad depth, despite having eight-figure yearly losses. My question is, how much would we need to spend to get promoted based on past teams that have gone up without parachute payments, like Brentford, on average? It's, it's always a certain sadness for me as a Palace fan. Can you just keep your... 
uh, and Palace. You can see the links. They're, they are London teams, but they're local teams within London, similar size, arguably underachieving. But, I mean, there are a time, Kieran, when QPR were, were the team that were challenging Liverpool and Man United at the top of the old Division One and playing some great football. And it's, it's not that long ago since they're in the Premier League and their demise seems to be both sudden and slow at the same time. So can you give Connor any hope? How much would they have to spend? It's not necessarily a case of, it sounds good, it's spending it well. Um, if if we take a look, I, I've got the uh, I've got the transfer spends for sort of, sort of seven or eight clubs that have been promoted um, in, in recent years. Luton spent £7 million signing players um, in getting to the Premier League. Huddersfield, again, £7 million in going up in 2016-17. Forest went up, uh, and a lot of people you know, talk about Forest. It, it cost them £12 million quid to sign players in the year that went up. Um, Brighton did it for 19. Brentford did it for 22. Uh, Leeds, 46. Yeah, that's the only one where we've seen a substantial investment. And I suspect one of those two of those Leeds signings were were made after the club had been promoted. So it doesn't have to be a large amount. Clearly, there there is the challenge, um, given that you've got some pretty big hitters coming down from the Premier League. And you know, I think we can park the separate issue with regards to parachute payments on those. Uh, but it, it can be done. You know, the, the final of the championship uh, playoff at Wembley was between uh, Luton Town and Coventry City. And you know, both of those clubs were you know, relatively recently in, in League One as well. They've both been through some really tough times. And, and fair play to them. You know, Luton have started to acclimatise to the uh, Premier League and it's 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 a tough place to go to, as, as I'm going to find out on Tuesday night. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I haven't been to Coventry for a long time, I have to say. But there must be somewhere big enough for a statue of Mark Robbins to be put up because the, the, the job that man has done there has been incredible. Uh, Tom Jones has our next question. And out of courtesy to Tom Jones... I did do loads of potential jokes off the back of that, but I seriously went through the whole lot and think, no, he'll have heard that. He'll have definitely heard that. I'm not reading it because it is is an unusual question, so I can't can't say that. Um, But Tom has two questions for us, the second of which, at the end, made me laugh quite a lot when I read it for the first time. As Tom says, excuse me, Tom says, we've heard lots about multi-club ownership models and the advantages of player trading, centralised costs, etc., but with there being more questions about competitive integrity, should two clubs with the same owners meet, I do wonder how much longer they will be allowed. I was also wondering whether a multi-sport ownership model might be better going forward. As far as I'm aware in the UK, it's just Bristol Sport which does this, with Steve Lansdowne owning Bristol City, Bristol Bears and the Bristol Flyers basketball team. Would there be an advantage to, say, Manchester City taking over Sale Sharks, Rugby Union, Lee Centurions, Rugby League, and Manchester Giants basketball? Could they spread central costs like IT and HR, as well as spending on things such as training grounds and medical services in order to be advantageous for the football FFP? Or, question number two, is this just a bonkers idea I've dreamt up after one too many ciders? Two question marks, which was the bit that made me laugh the most. <laughs> um, 
I'll let you answer the second one and I'll answer the first one. Um, <laughs> well, you better answer the first one first because I don't think it is a bonkers idea because it, it seems, <laughs> right. to me a, seems to me a perfectly logical idea, which probably means we've both had too many ciders. Um, well, well, Tom, with regards to multi-sport, um, there, there is a very good case for having this as a model because as an investor, one of the things you're looking to do is to create a portfolio and to de-risk your investment as much as possible. So therefore, should, and, and I think this to be extremely unlikely, should, for, for whatever reason, football becomes a tainted industry, a, a, a sport that pe- people are no longer interested in, then having uh, financial involvement in other sports does make sense. Um, if we take a look at uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe um, and Manchester United, well, he also owns an investment in cycling. He's involved in uh, sailing as well. If we take a look at many of the US investors in football, um, we've got FSG, um, who own Liverpool, but they're also involved in in US sports. The Glazers, um, is it the Miami Dolphins, Stan Kroenke at Arsenal, he owns uh, an NFL team. And possibly um, we're going to have 777 involved at Everton. Well, they're involved in British basketball. They own a 45% stake in that. Um, and, and they've got other uh, broader investments as well. So portfolio uh, investing is you know, a fairly standard practice because you, you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket because if uh, if, if that one basket is is labelled Kodak or Nokia or, or, or MySpace, um, then its value can, you know, for whatever reason, at some point in time, collapse due to changes in market conditions, due to new technologies, whatever that may be. Um, so I think there is very much a case for this. The, the downside, which is something which we were hinting at, yes, uh, a little bit earlier. And you know, I, I, I appreciate Steve Lansdowne's been a fantastic benefactor to, to Bristol Sport full stop, um, is that they don't tend to to move the dial in terms of the the revenues that they generate um and they don't tend to be profitable so what you're doing is that you're adding one loss making business or non profit making business to to your football club which is okay unless you know personal circumstances change and and you then have to go and make a a decision as to which one of these or which you know which part of this am I, am I going to get rid of um so I don't think that they would make enough of financial impact because all we're interested in this country is, is football. Uh, to, to far, to far. Yeah, you know, as a football fan, it's, it pains me to say. It, it, I think we got it wrong. I think I think that it's a shame that other sports get squeezed out so much. Yeah, unfortunately, that that genie's not going to be put in back in the bottle anytime soon. Is it? It's interesting, Kieran, isn't it? Because traditionally, across the whole of Europe. Many, many football clubs also have basketball teams, handball teams, mm. but they were started at the same time. So these aren't things that have happened as a way around FFP. It's just that when these clubs were started 50, 100 years ago, they were started as general sporting clubs. And it's just that over the time, the football has become the dominant power, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I played for Trafford rugby and cricket club you know and that that was very much the norm and we'd also be potentially a lacrosse team as well and, and so on um because that allowed the you know when the club was set up and, and my 
my cricket club was originally the the vicar's shipyard in uh, in Manchester, and, and we were the works team uh, before Vickers pulled out and, and they bequeathed the uh, the sports grounds to the you know the, the former employees. There's got to be a Smithsby cycle to Vickers shipyard, isn't there? But Vickers <laughs> spelt A R rather than yes. That's a great. That's a great euphemism. You must have sent that euphemism to Viz at some stage. The Vicar's Shipyard, surely. <laughs> no, um, right, you got, got you got my mind thinking now. I'll yeah, I'll get working uh, on it. <clears throat> a, a friend of mine, uh, based in Gloucester, used to play for a handball team, uh, and I was always agitated. I said, I'd, I'd, I'd love to come along and watch you play handball. He, he resolutely refused to let me come along because he said, "I know what you're like. All you'll do is shout handball." Every time someone, uh, and I went, I wouldn't do that. He said, you did it when you came to rugby. So I'm pretty sure <laughs> he took me to a rugby game and got furious because I showed handball every time somebody picked. It's never not funny. Um, the multi-club ownership, Kieran, as we discussed in previous pods, uh, I'll, I'll leave a pause here for a lot of our listeners to go. It, it quite often isn't funny rather than never not funny. It's quite a lot of time. It's not funny. But the multi-club ownership deal, um, as implied by our, our previous question there from Tom, is something that's agitating our listeners a lot at the moment. And this is an interesting one from Adam Roper. Uh, and Adam says, on the pod, Kieran has explained the rules that prevent multiple clubs from being owned by the same person or even by the same company, i.e. Red Bull, and also about the 50 plus one rule in the Bundesliga that keeps control in the hands of the fans. However, there are many instances where groups of owners have worked together for a common goal, Sullivan and Gold, for example, at West Ham, or where members of the same family own a club, Leicester City, Notts County, Man United. And also there are mysterious, <coughs> says Adam, mysterious, shady, multi-club operations. Um, if any Man City lawyers are listening, by the way, the words mysterious and shady are very much Adam's and not the price of football. Although I, think we, I believe we probably have used both. Um, so my question is, what legislation, if any, is in place to stop a group of 10 very wealthy mates going out and buying up 10 football clubs in the same division and then to all intents and purposes running them as a collective? Football ideology aside, there would be a concern here for gambling implications. And surely when a club can be owned by a third-party company collective consortium, this must get so complicated that it's actually impossible to marshal. And again... I mean, what Adam's tapping into here, Kieran, is that as with FFP, people all through football are looking to find the various reasons why people might be trying to buy more than one club. And quite often they will put two and two together and, as you say, come up with with five. But, I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate concern, isn't it, in the same way that many people are worried about 14 American clubs being owned or 14 Premier League clubs being owned by Americans. Yes, and that that was one of the issues. You know, if, if these, if if you have fourteen uh, American owners who are also, you know, socially connected, um, I think we would be in a very intriguing position and, and not necessarily beneficial one. Um, we saw the sneaky six try to do something similar with Project Big Picture, which um, would have meant that there would only be ha- only be nine football clubs in the whole of the country, which had votes in terms of how the game went forward. And you only need six out of nine of those votes to carry any rules going forwards. Um, If we take a look at the Saudi Pro League, and I was uh, reading an interesting article um, about how good is the Saudi Pro League. And people said it's it's on a par 
probably with League Two in terms of quality. But PIF own four of those clubs. Um, so, so there is a concern. There's also a concern from a gambling point of view. Um, and um, I refer to um, one of our friends, the secret football manager, um, whose name I cannot uh, indicate. One of, our, uh, one of our listeners is a secret football manager or has been a secret football manager who has uh, managed overseas as well. And uh, I was having a conversation uh, and I was saying, you know, have you ever been put under any pressure? And he says, well, yeah, one of the clubs I was at, on two or three occasions, the the club owner would come into the dressing room and said, okay, lads, 3-1 defeat today. I've agreed it with the the opposing owner. And you lost 3-1. So there is a concern. With, With regards to legislation, um there are the, the the problem we have is how do you define mates because you know i i can just imagine uh our our secret lawyers uh, who listen to the show they're all shaking their heads at this you know it's very difficult certainly from an accounting point of view um there's a definition of what we refer to as a related party and that is sort of very much you know, uh, hammered down. You've got to have control, influence in terms of owning percentage number of shares, and then the links between the parties. Um, you know, can can they be proven? Um, you you can prove family links, you know, through a, you know, from a you know, genealogical perspective, but acquaintances, it's it's very very difficult. So, um, you couldn't have any legislation with regards to this. Um, if you had an independent regulator of football who could act uh, for the broader benefit of the game, then that's then that's a check and balance. But yeah, we are seeing um, across me- in many industries, and I mean, I'm not getting on a political soapbox here, but in certain countries which traditionally you would hold to be bastions of democracy, the checks and balances that hold up democratic process, democratic process are being taken down one by one. And it's, it's a, it is a cause for concern. Um, I don't think you could legislate against this. Uh, it would be very difficult. And therefore, um, having some uh, protective organisation, whether that's through you know, fan involve, fan involvement or fan protest. Remember, it was fan protest that took down um, the uh, the European Super League. We've we've often spoken about the level of fan organisation in Germany. It, it would have to come down to that mm. to prevent such a thing from uh, taking place. So I'm going to spend the whole day now speculating about who the secret manager is. So you, you mentioned that they manage here and abroad. I can only think of three people. As I can, Roy Hodgson, Jurgen Klopp, or Jose Mourinho. So one of those is yours. <laughs> Can't think of any other managers who have managed here and abroad. Yeah. Chris Swain, um, and this is, I don't know when Chris, Chris Swain sent this question in, um, but it's now become a, a classic public discussion um it's about var which we rarely get to talk about var kieran because we we're not a football pod we are constantly reminded by the boss we're a football finance pod which i seem to be the only person in the country who think newcastle's goal should have been disallowed against fulham because i don't care if it's deliberate or not the ball wouldn't have landed 
at the feet of the Newcastle player if it hadn't hit the hand of the Newcastle player. So uh, I'm I'm starting to like VAR now because it's given me enough as much, as much to get annoyed about as I used to. Um, but Chris says, with VAR being the most accurate portrayal of a person's ego sitting in a box far away from the action, <laughs> I like the sound of Chris's. I don't know. I don't like the sound of his jib. I like the, the cut of his jib. I don't know what a jib sounds like. How long do you think it will be before a large club with deep pockets will sue VAR, in inverted commas? We all know that it will be the silver-tongued folks that gain the most from any such action. But is there a realistic price of compensation that could be chased by the aggrieved club? I appreciate this is rather an open question, you're telling me. And if anyone was successful, that would open the floodgates. Would this be shut down straight away? Or is there something in the rules that say playing in our league competition then you have to accept any decision given by VAR. I, I suspect, Kieran, this is a question that's been discussed in pubs since 1888, but about referees. You know, it's yeah, There's never been the option to sue a referee for a wrong decision. I think chaos and anarchy would ensue if you were able to challenge any VAR decision in the court. But we've again, we've had lawyers on the, on the pod, Kieran, talking to us about the the grey area between an assault on the pitch and an assault off the pitch, whereby, you know, five yards either side, if you punch someone, you'd be taken to court. Huh? And if if you're on the actual pitch, you wouldn't. So uh, what do I know? Well, um, this is a very topical issue because, Kevin, I give you Anderlecht versus Genk in the Belgian Jupiter League. Um, there was a late penalty... Um, the uh, the goalkeeper saved it. Kasper Schmeichel saved it. Uh, it was then tapped in by another player um, and a goal given. And then the goal was disallowed and a goal kick was given because the, the second player who scored the goal um, had encroached when the original penalty was taken. However, VAT failed to pick up that two defenders had also encroached into the penalty area, and therefore the correct decision should have been for the penalty to have been retaken. As a result of this, Anderlecht versus Genk is now going to be fully replayed for 90 minutes. So this is this is a, yeah, amazing. Um, so th- this was a, a, a VAR error. Um, yeah, my view on VAR is that as a result of VAR, we've gone from probably getting 96% of decisions correct by referees to 98%. Um, so I'm, I have a degree of sympathy. Um, and also, you know, as I've said before, I used to referee myself. Um, you, you give what you see. So, But in terms of Chris's question in respect of litigation, I think the only way that there could be financial recompense um, in respect of VAR, is if it could be proven that there has been an act of negligence. Now, in order for negligence to uh, be successful, and, and this is going from, I, I, I taught one law class in my life um, when one of my colleagues failed to turn up, um, and I actually had to teach negligence. Um, so this this is what I can recall from from that class, which I think took place in. 2004. Um, so to celebrate the 20th anniversary of my one uh, giving of a law class, uh, this is it. First of all, there has to be a duty of care to 
um, the, the parties involved. Secondly, there has to be a breach of that duty of care. And thirdly, there has to be a loss suffered as a result of that breach. So does a referee stroke PGMOL via VAR have a duty of care towards individual football clubs? Um, probably. Yeah, you are there, you're there in a duty of employment to try to uphold the rules. Has there been a breach? Um, well, okay, here's the issue is, was it a deliberate error? You know, you know, negligence is being careless. Um, I think it could be argued that in the case of, and I think the most glaring one this season has been the uh, Diaz goal for Liverpool at Spurs. Um, was there a breach? Yes. Has there been consequential loss? Potentially, there could be. If, if Liverpool yeah, end up, and they won't, but if, 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 for example, they ended up fifth in the Premier League or they ended up runs up of the Premier League by two points, you, you could understand the agreement. There has always been, I think, from a legal point of view, the, the, the view taken by judges is that people give their best opinions from where they are. And, and for all of the critics of referees, um, I, I always say to this, just go and do it yourself. Just try it once. And if you get 100% of the decisions right, and both managers agree, and both sets of fans agree that you've got 100% of decisions right, then, then fair play. Um, I'll, I'll take that. But it's, 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 it's an impossible job. And players cheat. Um, you know, referees don't cheat. Referees are not corrupt. Players cheat rather than the other way around. So I'm not saying it, it won't happen, Chris, because it's, uh, it would open up a can of worms and, and opinions are subjective. Um, but you know, there's so much money involved in football now. Um, never say never. I used to referee the annual South London Comedians v North London Comedians charity match, oh. and you, you you think even a game being played between twenty four mainly middle aged men, it's quite quick, it's fast, isn't it? And it's and yeah, also, but they get they used to get really edgy. I had to one occasion I had to call Bill Bailey and Alan Davis to the centre circle and threaten to send both of them off. They didn't. They didn't calm their team down. It was just like, there's just a charity game. There's a charity game. It's free. Oh yeah, don't be fooled by that. The, the twinkle-toed sweetheart <laughs> demeanor. Uh, also, I, I like that. I love Bill Bailey. He's wonderful. But um, <laughs> I like the fact as well, Kieran, that you're such an accountant. You referred to VAR as VAT halfway through that explanation, which made me laugh a lot. Um, this next question, Kieran. Bearing in mind that we both have a, a, a train to catch and hopefully the end of the cricket to watch, it is rather uh, an existential angst ridden one that we have covered virtually, uh, I think, from day one. But I'm, I'm happy to ask it, but I just wonder if there's a way we could keep the, the answer fairly succinct because we could, I mean, this is a, this is a separate pod. This is a separate pod series, let alone a separate podcast. And it's from Jonathan Ricketts. And Jonathan says, do you think it's fair that clubs get a 10-point fine for going into administration? Often the owners who cause it have gone, the fans are then punished, and it feels like a double punishment. And If I can start briefly with my answer, Kieran, no, it's not fair, clearly, but so far I've failed to come up with any other option that doesn't punish the fans. Yes, it's actually it's a 12-point automatic penalty in the EFL. Um, I'm... I'm in alignment with you, Kevin. I think it's the least bad uh, punishment. 
because you you have to look at the alternatives. The alternatives would be a financial penalty. Well, if you just put a club into administration, the chances are you might not have the money to pay that financial penalty. Um, to give a financial penalty to the new owner means that you're not going to necessarily attract people and, and you're dealing with a company in financial distress. Could you give a ban to the old owner who has put the club into administration? Um, the answer there is is a potential yes. But if we take a look at uh, Al Young at Wigan Athletic, he was involved in English football for four weeks and, he, and he's never been seen since. So he doesn't care. Mel Morris got his fingers burnt at Derby County. I can't see him ever coming back into football. Could you have a transfer embargo as a result of going into administration? Yes, you could. But again, that's, yeah, that's acting against the club and the fans. Could you have a wage limit or a business plan? Well, you do have that. Yeah, that's that's part of what the EFL do in respect of any new owner. Um, if you have the threat of a points deduction, what it stops, and, and people forget that we went through a period in, in the early 2000s where we were getting three or four clubs going into administration um, a year, and they were often on the back of what we refer to as a pre-pack admin, where you'd put the club into administration, you'd stiff all the creditors, and then you'd buy back the club from the administrator five minutes later, um, inheriting all of the assets and none of the debts. And fair play to the EFL at the time. They said this isn't acceptable to, to local suppliers. You know, we've often said that um, local suppliers will give a line of credit to the local football team, which they wouldn't give to other customers because they're either fans themselves or they don't want to be seen to be the bad guys in the town because they also have many customers who are fans of the club. Um, so I think it's the least worst solution. You know, the best solution is, is to run the clubs properly and they don't go into administration, but you know, that's, a, that's an ideal world and we ain't living in one at present, are we? Mm. Uh, an ultimate question, Kieran, comes from Matt Collins, um, and I'm happy to ask this because it involves a particular bugbear in mind. Uh, Matt says, about 10 years ago, I took a university module led by Neil Doncaster, our friend, the head honcho of Scottish football, although I must remember that he doesn't like me calling him the head honcho. He doesn't say that on his door, apparently. Um, but Matt says, as part of this uh, university module, we had a talk from Paul Fletcher, MBE, uh, who certainly did not let us forget about his goal against Leeds in 1974. And he stated that as stadia are pretty much empty 300-plus days of the year, future stadia would be built above other buildings. For example, on top of a Tesco superstore, the store could be leased to the retailer and the club would have guaranteed income all year round. However, looking at the Spurs stadium and other future, potential future stadia, it seems that teams are still opting for a different approach where they emphasise the fan experience and try to upsell and squeeze every penny from fans' tourists. My questions are, is there anything stopping clubs from building a stadium like this? How likely are we to see stadia built in line with Paul's prediction, and would it be financially viable? Now, the part that really annoys me is that stadium are empty 300-plus days of the year, and there's so much community stuff they could be doing on those days. But I think this is a really interesting question. I mean, it's Monaco, Kieran, isn't it? Grounds built on top of a multi-storey car park? I believe, but but for the most part, it's very unusual to have a stadium integrated into anything else, isn't it? The odd jazz cafe outside at Reading, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, at MK Dons, there's a hotel which is embedded into the stadium. So, so we are starting to see. I, th I think Spurs have probably got it about as right as you can 
in my view, in that now underneath the ground, you've got the indoor go-karting. Um, you've got the the tour where you walk over the top of the pitch. And yeah, that's sort of been, yeah, there's a bit of Disneyfication there. Um, with regards to um, putting the, the stadium on top of an existing building, um, as, as somebody that, that needed oxygen from getting to the top tier of St. James's Park oh, when I went oh, to yeah. see us play at, uh, at Newcastle, I, I'm not sure I'd fancy the walk. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you, and I think what would also uh, probably action against this would A, would be planning permission objections because, it, and B, the, the construction costs would be so high because you would have to have your Tesco uh, retail store um, with a roof which is thick enough to be able to deal with you know, 50 or 60,000 people on top of it. And you, you can just imagine you know, you're wandering down the aisle at Tesco um, and you're going, oh, I should have got digestives or, or you know, should I go for a, uh, you know, hobnobs today? And then somebody scores a goal above and, and you've got this incredible sound and people jumping up and down. So I, I just don't think that we've got the uh, architectural uh, skills at a cost which would be feasible for this to take place. But I absolutely agree with both you and Matt that football grounds are underutilized yeah we, we've had a groundsman on the show and we know how protective they are of the hallowed turf and, and, and we all know that the turf is hallowed so how should there be utilization uh yeah I, I go to Wembley now and then to teach um so you know clubs are now using the boxes and uh some of the facilities to uh increase revenues um, and I think it's going to be an area that is going to attract a lot of attention going forwards. As uh, it's a horrible phrase to use, as more clubs realise they need to sweat the property assets yeah, yeah. in order to maximise their income streams. Uh, I think they'd probably close Tesco's down, Kieran, on a match day, wouldn't they? Rather than have seventy thousand people jumping up and down at the top of it. We, I, <laughs> I mean, Tesco's would be happy though. Oh, Tesco's would be very. Imagine the chaos on Boxing Day though, Kieran. Tesco's are starting their sale, <laughs> and you've got a big. Um, I mean, Palace fans have had enough stick for having the Sainsbury's at one end, let alone being built on top of one. Um, and also, this, this, this Sainsbury's issue has been one of the many reasons for the delay in building the new stand while they came to terms with the legal implications of who owns various corners and angles. Our final question, Kieran, comes from John Benstead. And it's a simple one, but an interesting one. But John says, is there a rough estimate of how many fans need to regularly attend games in order for professional clubs in the lower leagues who don't receive much TV money to be sustainable in the long term? Yes. Uh, John, I, I don't know who you are, uh, but I might need to get your email address because Ooh. potentially your name could be cited as part of a divorce, uh, <laughs> which, which may take place. Uh, when I got this question, um, and I was really... And as I sort of hinted at on a few occasions on the show, like many men of a certain age, um, I've got an enlarged prostate, which means I need to go to the toilet three or four times a night. Um, so therefore, you know, I, I check in on emails and so And when I read this question, I thought, I can only solve this using my spreadsheet. <laughs> so so this was about four o'clock in the morning and the baroness goes, what do you think you're doing? And I said, oh, we got this question from this bloke called John Benstead. He wants me to work out how many extra season tickets you'd have to sell. And when I explained the question to her, she just gave me a look 
<laughs> so withering. I was thinking, <laughs> this is this is a wonderful relationship. I mean, have I just taken it a step too far? Um, but I have put the numbers into uh, a spreadsheet, John, and, and I can give you the, the definitive uh, average numbers of tickets that would have to be sold in order for EFL teams to break even. So if we start off at League Two, and, and League Two, in my view, is run reasonably well, um, you'd need to sell an extra 800 tickets per match. Oh, okay. okay. Not, no. not too bad, you yeah, know, but yeah. still, you look at the average crowd, we're probably talking, you know, that's you know, 20% increase. We move to League One, and it goes to an extra 5,000 oh. tickets per okay. match, and you're going, if yeah, if you're Wigan, if you're yeah. you know, some, you know, clubs, that, that that could be quite a challenge. Um, and we get to the championship, and you would have to sell an extra twenty-two and a half thousand tickets per home match wow. in order to break even, um, which is indicative of something we've said from you know, practically from day one. The championship is the the clown car of of European wow. football. I always knew you were a closet royalist. You never had an enlarged prostate until the king had one. You know, there's not a mention of an enlarged prostate until... <laughs> yeah, it's just... It's, I can't remember who it was. Arthur Smith used to quote a philosopher who said, growing old is like being punished for a crime you didn't commit. As I said, we'd, we didn't sign up for this when we were 23. No, we didn't. <laughs> we were talking to Steve Lamack the other day about the, the mosh pitting in the old days. You didn't have to go to the toilet every four, every forty minutes during a UK subs gig. What's what's going on, Kieran? Um, as I mentioned, uh, I think Wednesday, uh, so two days time, that new podcast comes out, the price of music. Mm. Plus, uh, it's prefaced by a twenty-minute interview that Kieran and I did with Steve and Stuart. And if the podcast um, is half as entertaining as that twenty-minute discussion. Um, I still didn't get to the bottom of which of them was me and which of them was you, Kieran, but it turns out they're going for a different model rather than the <laughs> expert and lovable, lovable idiot. They're going for two people who know what they're talking about. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. And it will get you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash price of football. I'm a bit paranoid, Kieran. Somebody said to me that when I say that, it'd be very kind of you. I sound like Boris Johnson, which is, <laughs> which really, which is really worries. I've been trying to find a way to say it in a different way. If you've got a question you'd like answered on the show, then email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And you can also go to priceoffootball.com if you'd like to buy uh, one of our books or get yourself a Price of Football T-shirt. Uh, we will be back with the news on Thursday. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thanks for all the contact, gang. Much appreciated, as always. If you if you want to listen to the show without adverts, uh, I think it's as little as £3 a month on Patreon. Um, so that, that's an option available for you. But, you know, I appreciate equally that... Uh, yeah. You know, times are tough for us all. Um, there's various ways of supporting the show, um, and one of those ways is is to give us a review. Um, it helps the algorithms. It helps us uh, to, in terms of when we're trying to get guests and so on. People read the reviews and so on. Um, by all accounts, it doesn't matter, according to producer guy, what you say. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Doctor Evil 
of the Austin Powers movie. <laughs> and Martin Gore, the songwriter from Depeche Mode, because any man who wears black nail polish in his 60s is a man to whom my cap is well and truly doffed. Oh, Robert Smith and Martin Gore. Now we're, now we're discovering the truth behind the passion there, Kerry. That would be that would be a great one, wouldn't it? I, I, yes, you yeah, had a great time at Depeche Mode gig, didn't you? you didn't... They were they were sensational, and and a big thanks to the the Derby County fans. I think I'd mentioned on the show that I, I was I tried to get tickets and failed, and uh, one of our listeners who supports Derby very very kindly said I've got a couple of spare, so I I, uh, I uh, bought those tickets off him, and they were just brilliant, just brilliant. Well done, that man. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Ice up for football.